thank you, Bud. I always like it when uh, the person introducing me tells people what I'm going to say. You didn't know that you did that, but you did. Uh, one great advantage of speaking to this group is I'm sure that you know better than some other groups whom I address that there are no experts in Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure you also know there are no experts on Alcoholics Anonymous, at least not in the usual sense. And so let's be clear that I'm not here as any kind of an expert on alcoholism or on its treatment. I'm a historian who has been engaged in studying the story of the Fellowship of AA as a program of recovery. As an historian, I've been fortunate to have access to the archives, records not only in New York, but also in places, Akron, Cleveland, even Texas. So I've interviewed many of the old-timers, as well as listened to all the interview tapes. But the source of that study was my suspicion, which has since grown to a conviction, because it is based on my own experience, strength, and hope that Alcoholics Anonymous has profound significance for many people, even beyond those who are fortunate enough to know that they are alcoholics. Now notice that I don't say fortunate enough to be alcoholics. I think it's really arguable whether or not it's good to be one. In fact, in all the time I've been doing this, I've only met one person, and I understand you heard him on Thursday, Dr. Dan Anderson, who I even suspect might want to be an alcoholic. But there's no line out there that you get into and sign up. But I think we will all agree that if you are one, it is better to know and to accept that, especially if that knowledge and acceptance opens the door to a way of living that enables a truly human existence. I'm engaged in studying AA's story. Uh, it strikes me that alcoholics and historians have this in common. We both tell stories. True stories. True stories that by their telling help to create new truth by enabling understanding. Now, the story theme at meetings of AA is what we were like, what happened, and what we are like now. My task here tonight is to apply that theme to AA itself, to examine AA's significance by exploring incidents, elements of the story that tells how this way of thinking that truly heals, that makes whole a humanity fractured and broken by the disability of alcoholism, how that way of thinking itself developed. The extension of these ideas, by the way, in treating the terminally ill and working with battered women, sexually abused children, most exciting to me at the moment is I'll be doing some work in the fall with Vietnam veterans suffering from, the name, they keep changing the name, but it was post-traumatic delayed stress syndrome the last time I checked. Um, these ideas are healing in a very wide sense. See, on one level, on the most important level, the story of AA is very simple. It is the story of the progressive discovery by a group of alcoholics who, when they were drinking like the play god, 
But in reality, they are not God. Now, as Bud indicated, that was the title that was finally given to my book on the history of AA. I sometimes think I try to pack too much into it. About once a year, someone comes up to me after one of these talks and says, you know, I'll have to read your book. I never did because I saw its name and I don't read atheist propaganda. Well, I tried to pack too much into it. This evening I want to unpack it. Using incidents and illustrations from AA's history to tell the story of why that phrase, which is based on page 62 of the big book, first of all, we had to quit playing God. Why that phrase seems to capture the essence of the wisdom of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you see, the key isn't in that sentence. That sentence has been spoken by teachers throughout the centuries. First of all, we had to quit playing God. The genius of AA appears in a sentence that immediately follows it. It didn't work. That would have even been a worse title for the book, wouldn't it? It didn't work. <laughs> How many would you have me here then if I published It Didn't Work in History of... First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Now, referring to the wisdom of AA and speaking of AA as a way of life that involves a way of thinking may seem to run against one of the axioms by which AA's wisdom is conveyed. In fact, I suspect, if you're an average group, that through the minds of at least a couple of you is running the axiom, utilize, don't analyze. That axiom has validity, and I don't see what I propose to do as violating it. Because analyze means to break down into parts, to see what makes a thing work by breaking it down into parts. Whereas telling a story by its very nature looks to holes. It seems to me, again, and based on the AA history we'll explore in a moment, that the axiom utilize, don't analyze, does not mean don't think, but rather guides on how to think. This is the one lesson clear in AA's earliest history. Thinking about the program was not a problem during AA's critical years from 1937 to 1939. Bill W. got sober at the end of 1934, met Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob's last drink, June 10, 1935. You know that history. But it was in 1937. There wasn't any AA then. There were the Alcoholic Squadron of the Oxford Group. It was in 1937 that New York AA broke away from the Oxford Group. In 1939, a group of alcoholics from Cleveland stopped going to Akron. Under the leadership of Clarence S., they were the first ones to call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. And finally, Dr. Bob and others in Akron broke from the Oxford Group as the big book was being written and published. During those critical years, this era of the writing of the big book, there was much thinking, what precisely are we? How are we different from the Oxford Group? As Bill W. looked back on the total failure of his own efforts to share the message between December of 34 and June of 19, May, really, when he first met Bob of 35, you know, what was Bill doing during those six months? Was he going to summer school? No, there weren't any. He was trying to carry the message, and it didn't work. What changed when he met Dr. Bob? They kept exploring that. As Dr. Bob reviewed his own earlier failure to stop thinking, even within the Oxford Group, which he joined in 1932. As most of the other of the earliest members, 
Notice that AA seemed to work for them, even though they had failed at all the other methods of treatment. There were other methods of treatment. The gold cures were still around. The Keeley cures. Even with the years of prohibition, there were still some Keeley, uh, some houses offering the Keeley cure. They had tried them all. They hadn't worked. Their big question of AA was, how is it different? They felt a great need, therefore, to think very carefully about precisely what had been learned and how. Thinking was not a problem until the big book was published. The problem surfaced, especially between 1940 and 1942, when, to the best that of my research, my research has been able to uncover, every alcoholic in New York, except Bill W., drank again. What was the problem? Those who saw the big book as offering not a way of life for the alcoholic, but pat answers about alcoholism. In other words, as offering just another form of knowledge that could give control. They were the ones who had the trouble. In fact, the particularly heart-rending case of Hank P., whom, if he had not drunk again, probably would be revered as one of AA's co-founders comes very clear in this seeing the big book as the answer rather than as suggesting a way of life. And so from the very beginning of AA's own story, there was very much concern with how, with the way its members thought. From AA's origins in leaving the Oxford group and the writing of the big book through the countless discussion meetings that even today carry on the tradition and practice first established around kitchen tables in Akron, Ohio, and then upstairs in the upper room at 182 Clinton Street, and finally at Steinway Hall, the first outside building at which AA had a meeting. AA history reveals that at least for some who in sobriety recognize the difference between the knowledge that claims to control alcoholism and the wisdom that seeks to understand the alcoholic. Thinking can be in service to utilizing better. The clearest example, if I haven't convinced you of this yet, and the example for which most AA members are most grateful is Bill W.'s own in his writing of the book, Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. All of that book, but especially the treatment of steps five, six, and seven, which treated the alcoholic's de uh, demands for domination and dependence, are Bill's telling the story of his own thinking, of how his beloved AA program helped him surmount a depression that at times to at least some observers close to him, they feared that it might even be suicidal. Sometimes I'm asked this, by the way, so let me interject it here. Uh, there may not be time for questions at the end. There's no evidence that Bill much ever thought of suicide, much less attempted it, nor that he ever really was tempted to drink again. Unlike Dr. Bob, who fought the craving over time, Bill, it seems, from that beginning, A and its origins, has those two experiences with the desire to drink again. Never thought of drinking alcohol, but he, he was clinically depressed. This is why he was in therapy with Dr. Chibo. And his working out of it, his correspondence at the time reveals, as well as some of Chibo's comments in his correspondence with Bill and with others, such as Marty, 
is in the book 12 and 12. That way of thinking. And therefore, a suggestion, if I may, concluding this introduction based on AA history. If someone can only do one kind of thinking, the analytic kind that insists on breaking things down, on tearing them apart out of the ever-present demand for greater control, then by all means, concentrate on and hold to, utilize, don't analyze. But if, like Bill W. and his friends, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, friends as diverse as the philosopher Aldous Huxley, the Jungian therapist Margarita Leutigen, the Jesuit fathers Edward Dowling and John Ford, you realize that all thinking is not analysis. That thinking can also mean the kind of understanding that seeks to stand under some reality in order to embrace it rather than control it. If that is, you seek to understand more deeply the life-saving program and life-giving fellowship of AA, not in order to control it, but in order better to live whatever validity it may have in your own life, then I trust that your higher power and mine will use what follows to enhance rather than endanger your sobriety, whether you happen to be alcoholic or just merely human. Referring to AA as a way of thinking may still surprise some. Now, you are an educated group who's familiar with the literature on alcoholism. Let me, therefore, bounce three quotations off of you from the vast literature on alcoholism and see if you can spot, perhaps, whence they come. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. In order to recover, the alcoholic needs to develop a completely new set of conceptions and motives. And finally, liquor is but a symptom. We have to get down to causes and conditions. Any takers? Anybody want to guess on the sources? The big book, yeah. Once in an audience, I had someone who had memorized the first 164 pages who said pages 23, 27, and 64 of the big book. I cheated on the last one. Of course, it actually reads on page 64, our liquor was but a symptom, so we had, but that would have given it away. Way of thinking. The key to solving this confusion about AA as a way of thinking, and at times the supposed anti-intellectualism of AA, it seems to me, lies in the ancient distinction between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is good. I hardly want to speak against it. To live well, we need the facts, the data, and the techniques that knowledge provides. We benefit from its approach of searching out causes from its goal of seeking to know things in order to control them. You have all, I am certain, mastered somebody of knowledge at great effort, and that knowledge is healing and is good. Knowledge is good, but it is not all good, ancient wisdom suggests. For knowledge untempered by wisdom, AA's experience, strength, and hope indicate is not sufficient to live humanly. This is the clearest lesson of the story of Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob, a physician, searched his, his surgeon of all things, physician from asterisk, searched his medical knowledge scrupulously and honestly for ways to control his alcoholism. He brought to it an integrity and honesty that cannot be faulted. 
He came up empty. Then he joined the Oxford group, which he participated in as a student of the spiritual. And until Bill W. came along, he went to the Oxford group meetings, he went through their devotions and practices, he read their spiritual books, and he kept on drinking. It's interesting, in his last major talk, Dr. Bob telling the story of his last drink when he went to Atlantic City for that convention after meeting Bill, stresses tongue-in-cheek his terrific thirst for knowledge is the reason why he went to the convention. His terrific thirst for knowledge. See, it seems important to remember, especially in the light of AA's history, that the early AAs, especially those most involved in writing the big book, who stayed sober after its publication, understood that they had not discovered any new knowledge about alcoholism. Every uh, Read the reviews of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disorders or the Journal of the American Medical Association. I reprint both in NotGot. The AMA's has a little bit of respect. The JNMD's is... Uh, you should read those sometime when the big book came out. They're, except for the emotional tone, they're accurate. Every idea in the big book about alcoholism can be found in and was indeed borrowed from other sources. You can find virtually all of them in Richard R. Peabody's book, The Common Sense of Drinking, written in 1931. In chapter 5, coincidentally of which you will find in blazing capital letters the sentence, Halfway measures are of no avail. And in Jimmy D's copy of Peabody's book, which is in the AA archives, you'll see that underlined and starred in the margin. Virtually all of the ideas appear in the published papers of Silkworth, Towns, Dr. Alexander Lambert. In fact, I think I found virtually every idea about alcoholism that is in the big book, in a book published in 1898 by Charles Fallon Palmer, entitled Inebriety, Its Cause and Cure. It's difficult to find that book, by the way, but if any of you have access to a medical school library, you may be lucky. I suggest you might find it interesting reading. AA's contribution, its stroke of genius, was not knowledge about alcoholism. First of all, it sorted out the knowledge about alcoholism that was out there. I mean, some of that knowledge about alcoholism said you couldn't use an alcoholic swab on, a, on an inebriate's body or else he'd go into some kind of delirium. Well, you know, AA's response was, our experience doesn't say so. But it basically, it plugged that knowledge that was already out there into its own hard-earned understanding of the alcoholic. It did this by applying to its own experience the way of thinking that was the ancient tradition of perennial wisdom mediated to it by the Oxford group. Wisdom is more difficult to describe than is knowledge. It has to do with a kind of understanding that is concerned less with data than with meaning less with causes which are push forces than with reasons which are pull forces. Wisdom focuses less on things such as alcoholism than on persons such as the alcoholic. And finally, wisdom seeks less to control reality than to embrace it. Most of all, perhaps, however, wisdom is characterized by this insistence that what can I know and how shall I live are not totally unrelated questions. Or, as Bill W. put it in one of his letters, after all, sobriety is but a start. The problem of finding out who we are, where we are, and where we are going next is something that must eventually confront everyone. That was about 11 step groups, where groups who shared the same religious commitment would meet to discuss the AA program within their understanding. By the way, Bill W. wasn't God either. Uh, and when I... 
quote from him to support a point, I don't mean to indicate, see, that makes it right. It's just that he had such a pivotal role in the formation of his way of thinking and its interpretation, because he was a letter writer and because of his long life, that uh, it seems appropriate to quote him, but as some of the later quotations will indicate, Bill, uh, unless I say this at this point, I always fear Bill might roll over in his grave. Have any of you ever visited his grave up there in Vermont, by the way? For an alky, he did pretty well. It's on a beautiful hillside, looking at one of the best foliage hills in all of Vermont. And the day that I visited his grave, I don't know with what in mind, at times I wonder about this, there was an empty bottle of booze, propped, an empty bottle, booze bottle, propped against the headstone. I always wondered if that, I always wondered how the poor sucker who put that there was doing. <laughs> I suspect he was doing pretty well. We might begin to understand the nature of wisdom as A.A. understands it without talking about the term by realizing that traditionally wisdom has always been conveyed by telling stories. Profound truths in this, Kierkegaard, life must be lived forwards, but it can only be understood backwards. And that is why people who tell their stories can gain in wisdom. Or in the words of a more modern thinker, I hesitate to mention his name, even Thomas Shaw's. The stupid neither forgive nor forget. The naive forgive and forget. The wise forgive, but they do not forget. And another AA axiom runs, remember when. Not nostalgia, not an imagined past, but remember when. For see, the key to wisdom is its awareness of limits. Wisdom is knowledge plus. Knowledge plus the awareness of its own limits. Wisdom begins with the insight, the vision, that to be human is to be essentially limited. We are not God. What AA does very simply is to take wisdom's vision of the human and apply it to the alcoholic. Efforts to analyze the alcoholic have resulted in what Dan Anderson introduced you to the other night, Keller's Law. Now, Mark Keller's research has indicated, and he knows the alcoholism literature better than anyone, that's all he's done for 45 years is read it. He's written brilliant articles about it. The investigation of any trade in alcoholics will show that they have either more or less of it. Well, since Mark published that just 10 years ago now, I'm hoping to publish soon in a journal an article suggesting Kurtz's corollary to Keller's law. And Mark uh, and I are really going to be doing this together. Because the literature that's been published since indicate that alcoholics, if you study them, have more of any quality than more than any normal people. I can show you articles that say alcoholics are oversexed and articles that they're undersexed. Articles that they are have more body hair, articles that they have less body hair. Kurtz is corollary to Keller's Law. This has the outstanding advantage that it can be stated mathematically. Alcoholic equals human. The starting point of AA's story, this core of wisdom is vision of reality about the human. Playing God doesn't work because self is not infinite, not unlimited, not absolute. The classic statement of this, there is something greater than the self of which the self is or yearns to be part. Now, this was in that Oxford group literature that the early AA members read in many formulations. The most broad statement, one that would be acceptable to and adherent to any of the world's great religious or spiritual traditions, 
There is something greater than the self of which the self is or yearns to be part, and unless one accepts that self is part, one can only accept part of self. Now, the AA recognizes and suggested from its initial insight about the alcoholic that there is also something more about being human, about being alcoholic, that strives and yearns to be more than part, that wants, if not to be God, at least to play God. In the words of Jean-Paul Sartre, of all people, who was not a member of AA, man is the creature who wants to be God. And so wisdom suggests as a paradox that to be human is to be both more and less than merely human. Being human, being alcoholic, is a mixed, middle, paradoxical experience. This is the meaning I tried to capture with not God. We are a hunk of not and a spark of God. Earlier classic images did this better than I can do it. They did it better yet, so I'll get there in a moment. Three centuries ago, the French mathematician Blaise Pascal, he who would be an angel becomes a beast. That sums up about half the AA stories I've heard. In the early part of this century, the Spanish-born American philosopher George Santayana, it is necessary to be a beast if one is ever to become a spirit. The other half of the AA stories. Or in a most vi- more vivid image, and one that I think has special validity, Ernest Becker in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, Man is a God Who Shits. Another philosopher has commented, it is better to encounter one's existence in disgust than never to encounter it at all. Uh, I said that at one of these, and afterwards an old-timer walked up and nudged me and said, first footstep inventory, huh? This mixed nature of human beings, you know it, you use it all the time, because... Indulge your fantasy with me for a moment in this age of space travel. Suppose a traveler from a galaxy arrives on Earth and has the misfortune to land in Piscataway, New Jersey, at 2 o'clock in the morning and has nothing to do there for no one to even say, take me to your leader, and so goes into the Center of Alcohol Studies and reads all the literature on alcoholism. And these people are really speed readers. He understands immediately everything about alcoholism and an alcoholic, and then understands the whole meaning of sobriety. And then I suspect he would come across a phrase that would blow his or her circuits. Sober alcoholic is not a contradiction, as the very presence of many people in this room testified, it is a paradox. The AA is not changing the word. You don't become an ex-alcoholic in AA. I mean, you, you, you refer to somebody in AA, you're talking to somebody in AA and you refer to an ex-alcoholic, they reach for the obituary page. This embrace of the continuing condition and then sober alcoholic, whether the phrase is spoken or not, the very fact that someone stands up manifestly sober in the full meaning of that beautiful word and says, I am an alcoholic, if you stop to think about it, is enough to blow the tightly rigid mind. Now, it's within this framework of how AA understands what it means to be a sober alcoholic, of why AA didn't try to change this word, make it more acceptable. You know, what better way to get rid of the stigma than to call it something else? That never works, of course. 
people try to learn. But within this, how, first of all, then, how members of AA have come through their history to accept the understanding of that reality. Secondly, how they've been able to find wholeness in it. And finally, how they've been able to transcend that limitation to some extent. To best appreciate AA's story here, as well as its significance, I want to be, I have to begin briefly with the abstract and then sneak up on AA's magnificent concreteness. Bear with me for a moment. The first message of the AA program is that the alcoholic must accept the reality of the human condition. To be human is to be both beast and angel, both not in God, is to be essentially limited and therefore not in control. It is accepting that reality that constitutes hitting bottom. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. There's an interesting correspondence in July of 1938 between Bill and Dr. Bob. Bill was wary about referring to alcoholism as a disease. In fact, he never really did. He preferred the word malady. But he wrote Bob, and this was all these letters were follow-ups to telephone calls, so some reconstruction has to be done. But he wrote Bob basically saying, you know, you're a physician, is it okay? maybe we shouldn't call alcoholism as a disease because understandings change in medicine and, you know, what if someday they decide it's not, then we'll be in trouble. And Bob wrote back, not addressing Bill's direct concern about medical knowledge will change, but saying no, because the one thing that we know and must teach about alcoholism is that it is incurable and we'll only get that across incurable disease. The important point is the hopelessness. And Bob, who wrote on small sheets of paper and printed large anyway, the word hopelessness was in total printed capitals and underlines. Hopelessness. See, not God is not really original from Bill's letters. It seems necessary for most of us to get over the idea that man is God, that we as individuals have any omnipotence whatever. The moment we can make that admission at depth, the sky starts to clear. Or to someone who wrote that he was being excluded from his AA group because he said he was an atheist, Bill, and wanted to know if he had to believe in the God of these other people in the group and the way he described them, I think I can understand why he would have had a problem. So did Bill, I think. Bill wrote back, we found that if the drunk admitted to a dependence upon the group, he had accepted the idea within himself that he was certainly not God. For just about every agnostic applicant, that has proved a sufficient starting point. This is the point that Bill discovered in William James, the meaning of deflation at death. This is how Dr. Thibault used it. A spiritual experience, Thibault said, is the act of giving up reliance on one's own omnipotence. Okay, now this core idea of essential limitation, that there are some things that one cannot do, this is somewhat negative. And to talk about a knot buried at the very center of the human condition is pretty abstruse. How is it possible to claim that AA, which is so practical and concrete, does this, especially to the barely dry drunk? Come on, Ern, what are you claiming? It's, AA does it so simply that to me it's incredibly beautiful. The very concept of alcoholic means you are limited rather than you have a limit. Let me act it out in this way. The person who's having a problem with booze starts saying, I think this happens once in a while. I, I've got to figure out what is my limit. If I can, and they may even come to an AA meeting to find out how to find that out and how to stay within it. I got to find out what's my limit. You know, I know my limit is two martinis. 
If I can just stop drinking after two martinis, I'll be all right. You know how long that lasts? If they're fortunate, maybe two or three months until the first really boring cocktail party. Or someone else says, I know my limit is four beers. If I can only stop drinking after four beers, not have any more than four beers, I'll be okay. And that lasts until the first extra inning ball game or the afternoon they're mowing the lawn, it gets really hot or whatever. My favorite in this is, my limit is wine only with meals. <clears throat> Would you believe that I know someone fairly well who once put on over 50 pounds in less than six months, spent 18 hours a day at meals? A person who's looking at what is my limit, how can I stop at my limit, comes to AA, and here's in the very concept of alcoholic, you don't have a limit, you are limited. It's the first drink that gets the alcoholic drunk. This is the concept of essential limitation. And this, by the way, is the problem with all, let me stick in a parenthesis, all efforts at controlled drinking. And controlled drinking is, of course, it's possible. Look at your active alcoholics. They're controlling their drinking a good percentage of the time as they're going downhill. Just what, what do we mean by control and how desirable is it? Essential limitation. It does not have a limit. This is so important that AA applies it by living it, not only by telling it. AA applies this lesson of essential limitation to itself as a fellowship. 100 years before AA came into existence, in the 1830s and 40s, there were groups of alcoholics who believed in helping each other, especially by attending weekly meetings at which they shared their experience. They tried to have available constantly fellowship. They insisted on reliance on a higher power and also on total abstinence. They were known as the Washingtonians, but for a hospital of that name in Jamaica Plain, outside of Boston, and Milton Maxwell's articles, I don't think anyone would be aware of them. Because, see, there were these differences among the Washingtonians from AA, as Bill pointed out after Maxwell called them to his attention. This is a grapevine article. They admitted non-alcoholics as members. They decided more is better. They also took a teetotal pledge. It wasn't one day at a time. One promised in the Washingtonians to never drink alcohol again. And finally, and most tragically, they got involved in other problems. One reason they accepted non-alcoholics as members, they got involved in prohibition efforts. And perhaps even more tragically, in the late 1840s, it was difficult not to take a stand on the political issue of slavery. The two headquarters of the Washingtonians were Boston and Baltimore. As you can well imagine, their members had different attitudes towards slavery. But AA learned from that history, and therefore AA's acceptance of limitation and application to itself is, is important because it helps to clear up some misunderstandings that AA's history clarify. What about AA's insistence that the, that the drinker somehow has to ask for help, that the drinker must really want to stop drinking? An early statement of this, but you must be quite sure he really wants to stop drinking, period. Then he gets the needs to get into circulation among AA groups until he runs across a few kindred spirits, etc., etc., etc. It doesn't make very much difference how serious his alcoholic problem is, provided he really wants to get well. And that's underlined, I tell To me, it's a rather strange criticism. AA helps only those who want help precisely. 
is my understanding of the answer. AA thus respects individual humanity, the limitation of the drinker as well as its own. AA can raise bottom by helping someone to want to stop if the drinker is willing to be open to identification. But AA is a program of recovery, not treatment. AA was not designed by people who had to be motivated to want to stop drinking. That first generation desperately wanted to stop and couldn't. It was that kind of people who devised the program. And the distinction, therefore, between retreatment, treatment and recovery, I think, is an important one to keep in mind. It seems to me that one aspect of treatment beyond detoxification, or perhaps at least on occasion, motivating someone to want to stop. And thus, while it, I always step on toes at this point, if I haven't already, it's on the one hand, it seems good for both those who work in treatment and those recovering in AA to recall that the 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous does not read, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we took every drunk we met to the nearest detox. At least it didn't read that way the last time I checked it through. And yet it seems that some people who work in treatment expect that of AAs. On the other hand, it seems also true to me that is an AA group's responsibility of people who come to it, perhaps by way of treatment, even after they've been hanging around meetings for about six months, seem to think there are only five steps in the program. AA is spiritual rather than religious. is another acceptance of limitation. It's not a put-down of religion. Rather, Bill's frequent reference to AA is a kindergarten of the spirit. Religion should do more. AA is an, an antechamber and in other images that Bill, I think, have used only once. Spiritual rather than religious is to indicate that religion can do more for those who can find more in it. And also, AA locating its unity in being single-purpose. What about the problem of AA and other problems? What about the people who are chemically dependent and who want to come to meetings and introduce themselves that way? I can't answer this, obviously. There are no experts on AA, remember? But let me share something from AA history with you. AA has always readily allowed the use of its program, steps, and literature. The reason that it asks, it holds a copyright to the steps is to make sure that they are reprinted accurately. Never has permission to reprint the steps been denied, as far as I could determine. And the thousands of reprint requests that have come. Meanwhile, within AA, each group decides itself about chemical dependency on the basis of its own understanding of the possibility of all-important identification. If someone comes to a meeting and says, my name is so-and-so and I am chemically dependent and the other people cannot identify, they know that that person is not going to help them get well, nor can they help that person get well. Remember that people go to AA not to be good, but to get well. And therefore, the kindest thing in the world that they can do is suggest that that person go elsewhere. See, the core understanding in the October-November 1945 grapevine is already there. The big problem then... <clears throat> Some physicians were prescribing sleeping pills for those who were in the last, the second six months of their first year of sobriety. And there were two articles, first in October, it was entitled The Pill Problem, Chewing Your Boobs. Notice the understanding. And then in November, and this is one of the classic ones if you can get a reprint of it, it says across the top, you know, sort of the editor's blurb of physicians prescribing sleeping pills, and the actual title of the article, both of these were by Bill W., is Those Goofballs, the Sleeping Pill Menace. Careful reading of the article will make clear that the phrase, those goofballs, refers to the pills, not the physicians. 
But you could read it the other way. But the understand notice the understanding, chewing your booze. The primary purpose in AA has always been to help the alcoholic who still suffers. It doesn't matter whether that alcoholic is male, female, white, black, Catholic, Jewish, gay, or also addicted to other substances or not. But the primary healing thing within AA has always been identification, the process that allows telling stories to work. And each group will determine if identification is possible. If it is not possible, then both for the sake of the members of that group, as they will, they will indicate who's welcome and who's not, and they wouldn't help anyone by letting them in if identification were not possible. That will change. That will vary. Those who refer people to AA have a responsibility, it seems to me, as professionals, and I usually address this more to social workers, to know the AA in their community. In the community where I live now, small as it is, city of 50,000, there are some AA groups that will welcome someone who says chemically dependent, and there are some AA groups who will say, this, is, this place is for boozers. You're not a boozer, you don't belong here. But it's good to have both kinds of groups, because we have both, boozers and pill takers. But it seems that professionals should know that difference and be able to refer, suggest at least out of knowledge. This, this rejection of absolutes is so clear. Uh, some of this will be old hat. You know how the chapter 5 begins? Rarely have we seen a person fail who thoroughly follows our path. Have you ever felt, as about 130 members did when the book was first published, why the rarely when you got the thoroughly there? And so they wrote letters, and Bill's response got rather pat after times. Concerning your comment on the use of the word rarely in chapter 5 of the big book, my recollection is that we did give considerable thought to it at the time of the writing. I think the main reason for the use of the word rarely was to avoid anything that would even look like the claim of a 100% result. The concern for too much orthodoxy. As time passes, our book literature has a tendency to get more and more frozen, a tendency for conversion into something like dogma. This is a trait of human nature I'm afraid we can do little about. That's why he wrote the book 12 and 12, partially, to expand on what had been learned about the steps as they appeared in the big book. Perhaps the best working out of this, this is, by the way, why the four absolutes, which some of you may be familiar with in certain parts of the country, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love, unless you are from Cleveland or Akron, or I could probably list about eight places, you haven't heard of the four absolutes. If you're from there, you've heard about them. The principles of honesty, purity, and selfishness and love are as much a goal of AA members and as much practiced by them as by any other group of people. Yet we found that when the word absolute was put in front of these attributes, they either turned people away by the hundreds or gave a temporary spiritual inflation resulting in collapse. The average individual just couldn't stand the pace and got nowhere. And so again, while Dr. Bob kept using the concept of absolute, even in his last major talk, Bill, and what became for sociological reasons the majority in AA, did not talk in ways of absolute, and you can still find this marvelous diversity in AA even today. But the third tradition, you know what the, how the third tradition was originally worded? The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. You realize that honest has been left off. Why? Because they got, well, how do you tell whether someone has an honest desire? What can be, you can't require any kind of certainty, any kind of absolute. 
Now, all this emphasis on limitation, I'm sure, sounds pretty dull and pretty negative. If that were the whole story of AA, you might expect its members to be pinch-faced sourpusses. Let me establish my credentials as an American historian. Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, lived for a long time and had a thumbnail sketch of every 20th century president through John Kennedy. Her sketch of Calvin Coolidge was, he looks as though he was weaned on a dill pickle. <clears throat> Members of AA do not look like that. I'm sure that you know better. The hallmarks of any AA meeting are humor and a sense of freedom, for AAs find a healing wholeness in limitation, in their acceptance of limitation. I'd like to suggest two ways. First, limited control and limited dependence, and then humor and humility. The early AAs understood from their own experience that, el that being an alcoholic had to do with the demand to be in control and the claim to not be dependent. I don't need. And they realized that, what, that this just wasn't true. And if anything, in the case of the active alcoholic, he or she was absolutely out of control and absolutely dependent upon alcohol. But they found a middle. This has been better phrased, or I'm going to take the phrasings from groups that have uh, used the AA program, yet I think you'll see it in AA. The core message of limited control, you can do something but not everything. And therefore, you don't promise never to drink again, but you say that you're going to ask for help to not pick up the first drink one day at a time. You pick up the phone instead of the bottle. The acceptance of this is not to give up anything, but to gain the freedom to choose. This is where this philosophical point of essential limitation comes from. Understanding that AA came to. Except in the very first stage of dryness, and maybe an occasional reminder is later necessary, this is not the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. The, the sober alcoholic, I... It seems to me, does not go around saying, I cannot drink. Rather, there is the realization, because of the nature of obsession compulsion, that the real story is this, I can not drink. For someone who has been obsessively, compulsively addicted to alcohol, for anyone who knows any addiction, that is no small freedom. Therefore, this message gives freedom. It doesn't take it away. The message of limit. I can not drink. Similarly with dependence. Here the core message is you alone can do it, but you can't do it alone. Long before AA came along, and I, I think I have a piece of scrap paper that indicates this from the archive, everyone realized that the alcoholic's problem was dependent on alcohol. And so they worked on changing the alcoholic's dependence. Some approaches still do that. AA did not change a word of that diagnosis. It changed the accent. The alcoholic's problem is not dependent on alcohol. The alcoholic's problem is dependent on alcohol. To be human is to be in some way dependent. Our human choice is not between dependence or independence, but among the things one will be dependent on and those one chooses to be independent of. For the alcoholic, it's a choice between a less than human substance within oneself or a more than individual reality that remains essentially beyond the self. 
Bill had tremendous sensitivity on this point, the accusation that the alcoholic is immature. Some of you may know Jim Milam's work, which I think has a good deal of validity, pointing out that living without this society's chemical crutch requires more maturity. Bill's insight, highly satisfactory as it is to live one's life for others, it cannot be anything but disastrous to live one's life for others as those others think it should be lived. One has to choose his own life. I know that my underlying difficulty from which all others stem and are merely symptomatic is that inner insistence which demands that I either be absolutely dependent on someone or else dominate them. The latter merely being the reverse side of the coin whose main face is absolute dependence. And so the acceptance of a limited dependence upon a higher power, upon an AA group, upon a way of life, as freeing from the futile quest to be absolutely independent. And then the characteristics of humor and humility. In the recent literature, I'm most impressed by Dr. John Max a pursuit of insistence that if, if we would understand AA, and especially if those outside, under AA, outside of AA would understand it, they must seek to penetrate the nature of humor and humility in AA. When a Harvard psychiatrist says something like that, I always take notice. Humor, the classic understanding, I, I, I know some of you are recovering physicians. I often wonder if there are any recovering psychiatrists. Actually, one of my close friends is one. Uh, sometimes when I'm looking for a laugh, I read psychiatric journals <laughs> on the topic of humor, because at least classically, humor was understood as aggression. And so here are three quotations chosen, I must confess, not absolutely at random, from the psychoanalytic quarter. Ernest Chris, laughter breaks out when a sum of psychic energy which had been employed for the cathexis of certain psychic trends suddenly becomes unstable. Sidney Terakow, comedy is a release of aggression. The urge to tell a joke is a device for discharging the tensions of both aggression and guilt without resolving their ambivalence. My favorite is Morris W. Brody in the same journal. The ostensible gaiety of laughter masks fear, hate, madness, and despair. Laughter results from a sudden reduction in sadistic psychic tensions. When I wonder psychiatrists don't go to AA meetings, if I believed that, I wouldn't go to AA meetings either. <laughs> See, Freud was on the right track. Humor is a comp compensation for inferiority, but some of his followers especially got mousetrapped by Hobbes' aggressive idea. Humor doesn't have to do with aggression. It has to do with incongruity. It's the condemnation of the partial masquerading as the complete. And therefore, slapstick is the purest humor, the pompous person slipping on a banana peel. Now, notice how this developed in AA. They, the early AAs did not get together and they did not think that their drinking was anything funny, nor that their not drinking was funny. They sat around those kitchen tables and when a newcomer came, they tried to be very didactic and educating. And what the newcomers, you know, they, they asked questions. And the best way to answer that, those questions, were to tell parts of one's own story. Well, there is an incongruity, there is an inherent humor, a disproportion in the description of the phenomenon of alcoholism. You know, it just doesn't fit that a rational, my higher power, <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
I really don't know what to do with I can't even see my watch at this point. Uh, okay, why not? Because I couldn't let you out in this darkness. You'd trample each other anyway. Am I deadly? <laughs> the electrician is a psychiatrist, I was just told. I understand. Okay. Laughter, the laughter in AA, you all know, is never at the speaker. I don't even think it's with the speaker. Laughter is, laughter comes from seeing something in one's, we cannot see our own incongruity. We cannot see our own particular combination of not and God, of beast and angel, of sober and alcoholic. This can only be seen. This is the function that literature always had. If someone holds up a mirror, and this is the function of all storytelling. I'll come back to that on understanding in a moment. But the laughter is, the speaker says something which gives a glimpse of self. And this is what's laughed at, that incongruity. And it is here then that humility comes in. Humility, this is the heart of AA. Again, the most profound thing written on humility in the 20th century, I think, is Bill's treatment of it and his treatment of steps 5, 6, and 7 in the big book. That's partially because a lot hasn't been written by humility in the 20th century. But still, that read it. It really is profound. Humility is difficult to speak about. It's an ancient concept, most often misunderstood, and therefore too often disdained. AA captures its deep meaning, accepting one's place in reality between beast and angel, but participating in both. To be both sober and an alcoholic. This isn't groveling. On the other hand, neither is it grandiosity. To the misunderstanding of humility, if I, this might help erase it, it's hard to talk about it directly. I've got to go, it's impossible directly. For me, as for Bud, you have to have it before you talk about it. Um, Someone once suggested, uh, I, I, at an early stage of research, I felt that the alcoholic's problem in denial was either you know, self-hatred, self-loathing, or grandiosity. And someone who worked in the field suggested, you know, the alcoholic's problem is not that the alcoholic thinks I am a worm, nor is the alcoholic's problem that the alcoholic thinks I am very special. The alcoholic's problem is the alcoholic is convinced I am a very special worm. <laughs> now, see, that's not humility. That's not, but so obviously say humility. That's what people think you mean. Humility has to do with accepting one's place in the middle of reality. You can do something, but not everything. You alone can do it, but you can't do it alone. Again, in the wire tradition of wisdom that was momentarily in AA, do any of you know the original words of the seventh step? Humbly on our knees, asked him. And the phrase on our knees was eliminated at the time they put as we understand him after God because it seemed too religious. Well, I'm never going to question the wording of AA steps. Because uh, every time I do, I realize six months later that the original wording was better, and so I've just given up. But something was lost there. Uh, kneeling... It's traditional in Western, the Western religious tradition, not self-prostration, but kneeling. It's a halfway position. 
Now, it's sort of like the condition of the active alcoholic is staggering around saying, I can do it till he falls flat on his face in the gutter and then stands up. And the wonderful thing about kneeling is, again, depending on where he is at the moment, someone comes along and says, either get up on your knees or get down on your knees. You can do something, but not everything. That was what originally was meant to be conveyed by that posture. I realize that it's been lost. It hasn't been lost from AA, by the way. Uh, my research reveals that even though humbly on our knees is not the way the present seventh step is worded, informal AA tradition is preserved. You know what AA, informal AA tradition is? Around Boston, it works this way. Look, dum-dum, you get down on your knees in the morning and you ask for help. You got that dum-dum? And you get down on your knees at night and you say thanks. You got that dum-dum? That is informal AA tradition, at least in Boston, Massachusetts. The tradition is preserved, at least in places. The final point, humility and humor, and of being human, and again, is implicit in our own. These three words have the same root. Look them up. Look it up in the dictionary. Wisdom insists you can't have one without the others. Being human, a sense of humor, and humility. They all come from the same root, the Indo-European root, home. The closest English word we have for that is humus. You all know what humus is. It's dirt. Good, rich dirt, but it's dirt. Well, some of you have heard this before, I know. But there was this one summer six years ago when across five seats in the back of Rutgers was this six-foot-six-inch character who I think was from Texas. He was wearing a ten-gallon hat, had on cowboy boots, and a name tag shaped like a star, which read Tex. And I said, you all know what humus is, and he said, yeah, Doc, worm shit. <laughs> the agricultural scientist at the University of Georgia tell me that technically he was right. Uh, finally, transcending this limitation, which believe it or not, I think I can do in five minutes, most of what I've explored with you thus far from AA is history concern its program, but if AA has a program, it is a fellowship. This emphasis follows from AA's focus on the alcoholic rather than alcoholism. The deepest aspect of the insight that the alcoholic is not God. First of all, we have to quit playing God. It didn't work. Is that because to be human is to be both, we need somehow to get beyond ourselves. Self-centeredness. Selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. We're familiar with that. Okay. Now, therefore, the idea that the alcoholic needs others. Many people who casually study AA say, you know, AA has made the marvelous discovery that the alcoholic needs others. Well, as William James once said, horse feathers. The active alcoholics, of course, know that they need others. Read Bill's description of the active alcoholic's need for domination and dependence. If others aren't around, who are you going to dominate? Who are you going to be dependent on? What AA does is the first thing that's been known about AA all the time, the need for others, is how others are needed. And although it, the word doesn't appear in the literature, but I've got one quotation that's close to it. We need each other as human beings in mutuality. We need each other mutually. What mutuality means in a relationship is the relationship is not one of give or get, which we all realize infants think everything is. You got a getter, you might be asked to give, or you better give better than you get, or you know that. 
And supposedly, however, we learn, we mature in this society to think that a truly mature relationship is give and get, contract. And in many areas, that is correct. In all areas in which knowledge is dominant, it is give and get. But mutuality goes further. The metaphor used by wisdom teachers has always been that of human love. Concerns that which we can give only by getting, and that which we can get only by giving. Quotation from Bill. I'm sorry about this, but I'm reading it accurately. These psychiatrists have a hell of a lot on the ball, but I sometimes wonder if many of them know how to pitch it. The parental reason, this he's writing to someone who wrote, wrote back very enthusiastic about a new therapist, and some of the things he was describing raised a warning flag to Bill. The parental relation they have with the patient is good to start treatment, but not to continue it. The normal adult relation is a participating one, not a parental one. That's where we have an advantage in AA. Now, Bill was not writing a technical treatise on psychiatric methods. But the idea of a participating relationship, this is the whole story of A. What was different when Bill carried the message to Dr. Bob? He went to Bob because he needed Bob. The other people Bill approached somewhere between 40 and 70. From December of 34 through May of 35, Bill went to to save them. He went to Bob to save himself. See, we ourselves want to be needed. We not only have needs, we are strongly motivated by neededness. Or in the words of Bill B, AA number three, explaining why he listened to Bill and Bob. He'd been detoxified eight times in the previous six months. This is from his story as it appears in the second edition. All the other people that had talked to me wanted to help me, and my pride prevented me from listening to them and caused only resentment on my part. But as I felt as if I would be a real stinker if I did not listen to a couple of fellows for a short time, if that would cure them. This happens in every 12-step call. I'd like to imagine that right now a phone is ringing someplace. I'm certain not in the state of Minnesota, land of treatment centers. Land of 10,000 treatment centers is one license plate read. Uh, a phone is ringing someplace out in western Oklahoma, though. Uh, Mike is holed up at the Pigeon Drop Motel, and he realizes he's in trouble, and he dials the AA number. And they get, get to the answering service, and uh, they say, okay, room 168, yes. And so they call Joe. Joe's been around sober for 15 years. He's in his late 40s. He's got a week off from work. He's on a 12-step call this week. The operator calls him and says, okay, we got this call from this guy named Mike. He says, okay, be right over. And I realize he's supposed to take the kid, Mike, on a 12-step call. Mike is the newcomer in the group, the kid. He's 60 years old. But he's only been around the group for three months. But in this group, the tradition is you've been around for three months. You should go on a 12-step call. And so Joe calls Mike, he picks, or Joe calls Charlie, rather. Charlie's got to be the newcomer. Sorry if I've messed that up. Joe's the old-timer. Charlie's the newcomer. Mike is the drunk. Joe picks Charlie up. They go to the Pigeon Drop Motel. The trouble is Mike, after he made the call, reached for more liquid courage. He's really bombed. He opens the door and says, hi there. Well, they know what they've got to do. They're supposed to carry the message. Besides this, they're doing it to keep themselves sober. So they walk in, they sit down, they prop him up on the couch, and Joe quickly tells his story. And then he turns to Charlie. Now, Charlie is not dumb. You don't get to be a 60-year-old alcoholic if you're dumb. So, he, you know, he can tell what's going on. So he quickly runs through his story, too. 
And the guy is swaying back and forth. And I don't know what they do in that area. They either say, we'll come back and check with you later. Or here's a phone number to call. or take you to a meeting or what. I don't know what they do. They just they can't think of a detox that there isn't any. Be my hypothesis. But as they get up to go, I need somebody to play drugs. Come on up here, bud. And somehow that comes through that self-loathing, this message. There is some place, not only where I have something to give, but even for that about myself, about which I am most ashamed and most hate, even that is wanted. If there is a magic in AA, that is it. Mutuality. Who needs who more? Old timers or newcomers? I mean, who would newcomers model on? How could you stick with the winners if there were no old timers? On the other hand, isn't it beautiful how the old timers polish their sobriety when a newcomer arrives? I always feel sorry for the A group that doesn't have newcomers coming in. Or if you want to take mutuality to the ultimate ridiculous extreme, who needs who more? AA or drunks? What would happen to the drunks of this world if there were no more AA? Well, some would still get sober, they did before, but a lot more would probably die and there'd be a lot more suffering. But what would happen to AA if there were no more drunks? Now, don't lay awake tonight worrying about that. Oh. <laughs> the concept of mutuality. The fact that this is the beginning, Bill's carrying the message to Dr. Bob. What was what the difference there was the fact that this is the 12-step call as part of the 12-steppers program of sobriety. Two final points that to me are the most artistically beautiful about AA. First of all, understanding. AA's most profound lesson in mutuality, which is the core dynamic of the practice of telling stories. Our deep human want and need is to be understood. We all crave understanding. Well, within AA, from the practice of telling stories and the axiom identified don't compare, we learn that being understood comes best by understanding. If I sense that you are hurting and you need to be understood, no matter how much I say I understand or try to transmit understanding, it is not going to heal. There is a kind of hurt in which the only way in, you will, in which you will get the sense of being understood is if I let you understand me. And I do that by telling you my story. This isn't exactly revolutionary in words attributed to someone who died in the year 1226. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. And so this is how that humor works, and that holding up of a mirror and the telling stories. This is what was early recognized. Instead of answering technical questions, especially in groups where Dr. Bob was in Akron, where the natural inclination was to turn to the medical expert. Now, Bob was relatively taciturn and didn't like the center of the stage, which helped. His temperament helped. But they quickly learned that Bob answering the questions didn't help anyone get or stay sober. That it was the sharing of experience, strength, and hope, the telling of story that held up the mirror that allowed the understanding that was healing. It seems to me that in 
AA's story is quite simply the ongoing story of the ever-continuing discovery and rediscovery of the simple truth that we gain understanding only by understanding and the passing on of that truth. And finally, tolerance. Because of the acceptance of itself as not God, identity founded in limitation, AA invites an attitude that appreciates differences enriching rather than threatening. This is AA's most direct debt to William James. It's where he's referred to in the big book. Distinguished American psychologist William James indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way in which faith can be acquired. Tolerance didn't come easy to AA. Alcoholics are not notoriously tolerant. As the earlier prohibition movement testified, the history of the Washingtonians. It's interesting how it did. In the year 1945, something was going on in New York AA. I still don't know what it was. But the New York, this is New York City. Many members in New York City were afraid that if they let some stigmatized group join, this would ruin them. And I'm still not sure whether the stigmatized groups were, in the vocabulary of the time, ex-convicts or homosexuals. I know today we have better terms for both groups, but let me stick to the vocabulary of the time. Now, Bill met this problem of they were keeping either, and maybe it was both, ex-convicts or homosexuals out of AA for fear of losing their reputation. Bill met this by taking a perspective in the future and writing the story of AA, its first decade. And this is the key sentence that's in the 45 grapevine. The way our worthy alcoholics sometimes try to judge the less worthy is, as we look back on it, rather comical. Imagine, if you can, one alcoholic judging another. Bill, as he worked this out for himself, in the early days of AA, I spent a lot of time trying to get people to agree with me, to practice AA principles as I did, and so forth. For as long as I did this, AA grew very slowly. In 1945, the first year, or 44, the first year of this Yale summer school, Bill spoke. He gave the talk known as Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. That person might be in this group for all I know, but I, I don't know if you are, so I have to tell the story this way. He finished it in a... Uh, First, I have to tell it the way I told it three years ago. Uh, a young medical student, physician in the back of the room, raised his hand after Bill had finished and said, Mr. W., uh, could you summarize in a nutshell for us how AA works? And others who were there say that Bill's knuckles got tight on the lectern because that's what he'd just been doing for 45 minutes. But he stared at this guy who was in the back of the room and said, Honesty gets us sober, but tolerance keeps us sober. Now, up until three years ago, in telling that story, I occasionally, this is near the end of a uh, presentation, usually uh, slipped, and I said some young smartass in the back of the room got up and said, and three years ago at the Rutgers Summer School, I made that slip, and someone came up afterwards and asked me how I knew about that incident and everything else, and finally introduced himself as Dr. So-and-so. He's in his early 50s. He said, I, he said you were right in saying smartass because I was that physician. And now I've been in the program for three years. And I asked him some questions about the summer school to verify that as best as possible. I think, I think it holds. And yet this poignant discussion of this at times, AA is not a communion of saints. Someone writing to Bill complaining what was going on in their A group. AA is not a communion of saints that a company of sinners who under God's grace has been endowed with the power to perform miracles, but not always. 
Alcoholics Anonymous is a terribly imperfect society because it is made up of very imperfect people. We are all dedicated to an ideal of which, because we are very human and very sick, we often fall short. I know because I constantly fall short myself. Nobody can cause more grief than a power-driven guy who thinks he has got it straight from God. These people cause the world more trouble than the harlots and drunkards. When's the last time you've heard harlots and drunkards? <laughs> and Bill concluded, I ought to know I have had spells of that very thing myself. During all my research on AA, the most painful part is I was interviewing some old-timers. At the conclusion of the interview, they said to me, well, what do you think? How long will AA last? Is AA changing so that in another 50 years it will no longer be AA? As a matter of fact, is it still AA? Now, historians are not prophets, but I promised those people that I would try to answer that question in my book, and my answer at that time, five years ago, does appear on pages 248 and 249. But I've continued my research, and I, maybe I can polish that answer slightly. At least I want to conclude, because this may be your question also. Is it still AA? How long will AA last? So long as somewhere a sober alcoholic, when he or she meets another alcoholic, drinking or sober, sees not a believer or an unbeliever, not a gay or a straight, not a Baptist or a Catholic or a Jew, not a male or a female, not a black or a white, but sees rather another alcoholic to whom he must reach out in order to maintain his own sobriety. So long, in other words, as one alcoholic sees in another alcoholic first and foremost that he or she is alcoholic and therefore that both of them need each other. For that long there will not only be an Alcoholics Anonymous, there will be the Alcoholics Anonymous that you and I love and respect so much. And whether or not that comes to be is far more in your hands than it is in mine. But I hope the ideas I've shared with you this evening will help you to live that out. Thank you.